Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Lou Dawson, who is a ski mountaineer, the founder of wildsnow.com. He is an author and the first person to ski down all 54 of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks. And in this conversation, Lou and I discussed all of those things. We talk about the history and the current state of backcountry skiing. And we also discuss his new guidebook called Light Tours of Colorado, which has a subtitle that I really like. It's Mellow Backcountry Ski Routes to Minimize Avalanche Exposure. It might not be the most succinct subtitle, but it's very descriptive. Light Tours of Colorado is published by Beacon Guidebooks, and you may recall we had Beacon Guidebooks founder Andy Sovic on episode number 152 of the Blister podcast. That episode was titled On Guidebooks and Decision Making in the Backcountry. And you should check that episode out as well because I think it will serve as a really nice companion piece to this conversation that we are going to have here today. Now, before we get started, I want to give a bit of an update on our upcoming Blister Summit. The dates for the summit are February 20th through the 27th, and there are actually two summits that happen under that. So if you check the navigation bar of our Blister website, where it very conveniently says Blister Summit, check there for more information, or you can go to the show notes of this episode, and then you'll see there is a Summit A or a Summit B. You can sign up for either one, and then you will get to demo a bunch of brand new equipment you will get to be a part of panel sessions with a lot of really compelling figures in our snow sports industry and you're gonna get to ride chairlifts and go skiing with a number of blister reviewers and professional athletes and product designers and company founders this is quite a thing and this really is quite the event, and you are going to want to be a part of it. So again, you can find a lot more information on the navigation bar of the Blister website, where it says Blister Summit, or there will be links in the show notes to this episode. And to give you just a bit of an update of some of the companies that we already know will be at the summit, we've got Renown out of Vermont. And we can't wait to get more of you on Renowned Skis because we have been telling you how interesting and distinctive the feel of those skis are. So come to the summit and check them out for yourselves. And then we also have some pretty big players. Maybe you've heard of Rosignol and Dinastar and Solomon. And then maybe some of your favorite indie companies like Forefront and Folsom Custom Skis and Wonder Alpine and Wagner Custom Skis and Moment and Line. And Glade Optics is also going to be there. And true story, I realized this today. Every single ski day this season so far, I've been rocking the same pair of Glade goggles. 
maybe you should check some of those out for yourself. Anyway, there are going to be more brands that we'll be announcing soon that will be coming to the summit. Check it out. Get there if you can. And I promise you're going to have a great time. One more thing. We do have a guide we put together. It's called Getting Here, Gunnison and Crested Butte. There is a lot of very, very helpful logistical information in there, including current flight schedules into the Gunnison Airport. So check that out. Plan your flight. Once you're here, as we tell you in the guide, you do not need a car. So check that out again. Read our Getting Here article for more on that. And um, we'll see you in Mount Crested Butte for the Blister Summit in February. And with that, let's now go ahead and get to my conversation with Lou Dawson. Here we go. Well, Lou Dawson, how are you today and where are you today? I'm good. I'm in Carbondale, Colorado, in my little studio behind our house. I have a writing and gadget tweaking studio workshop. Are you currently in the room where most of your writing has taken place over the years? No, I was in our, I had an office in our house here in Carbondale for 25 years off a wing. And I did all of Wild Snow and most of my books in there, my guidebooks and that sort of thing. And then we, uh, we have a garage behind our house and just five or six years ago, we, I went ahead and resheet rocked it and put a floor in and stuff so I could have a space that was a little more removed from being in the house. Plus, I, I never had a workshop in the house, so I was always going back and forth from the, from the writing office to the workshop to work on bindings and things like that. And now I just step away from my desk and the, all my workbenches and everything are just 20 feet away. It's really nice. Well, we are here to talk a bit about this new guidebook of yours. But before we get there, I do want to touch on some of this uh, rather, you know, significant history of yours. Maybe we'll bounce around a little bit in terms of chronology, but I think I want to start by having you talk a bit about the first days of Wild Snow. You and I were just talking a bit about when you started Wild Snow, man, the internet was sure a different place back then and technology was and um talk a little bit about what led you to start it and then what it was actually like to be running a uh, a website back then well where it all started on the on the so-called internet was back before there was a public internet there was a service that went through the phone lines called CompuServe and i was at i was an early adopter of of PCs and i had a a junky, tandy PC, actually, um, somewhere in the mid or even earlier 1990s. I forgot what the exact date would be. But um, CompuServe had developed this networking system, and it, it was similar to how forums operate nowadays. And then they had articles and things you could read on their site. I'm not sure how it was coded or anything. But I got on there and I and I really took to it. I was a forum moderator and did a lot of off-the-cuff writing about the sport. Um, really concentrated on on just the backcountry skiing and some 
polemics about land use and types of gear and that sort of thing. So it was fun and probably wrote too many words and spent too many too much time on there, but that's from a familiar routine for people even nowadays. Um, but in any case, I was working on that and I produced my uh, one of my guide one or two of my guidebooks, 14 or guidebooks and those things. And John Waterman approached me from the American Alpine Club Press and collared me to write the history book, Wild Snow, that covered the history of ski mountaineering in North America. And I was new to history writing, and I'd, I'd never written a, narr- a narrative book. You know, they were all guidebooks. And, uh, but in any case, I tackled that. And while we were working on it, we didn't have a name for the book. Yeah, well, anyway, my poet friend suggested that I use a technique where you make two columns of adjectives and nouns, and then you just start connecting them together and see what sounds good. And we immediately came up with the uh, phrase wild snow for the title of the book. And it was such a great phrase and such a good brand and trademark in the whole nine yards that I just went with it ever after. I trademarked it and named the book that name and then named, named the website Wild Snow. So what happened with in specifics is I was with CompuServe and then the internet started. And I'm, I, I have three brothers and one of my brothers was a worked in the corporate intranet space. So he knew HTML and, and that sort of thing. And he one day he suggested he he said, Lou, you ought to have a website of your own. And this was before any hardly any private citizens had websites. You know, it was it was really a small deal. But anyway, he helped me code that first website and I registered the domain name wildsnow.com. And we had this little website up there. And it just a, it was only a couple of years later that I started writing a lot of articles about it and that sort of thing. And then soon after that, like we did flat HTML files that interlinked with each other to have a semblance of a blog type design. And then soon after that, WordPress came on the scene and I changed it over to a WordPress site. So it went like that, you know, and I figure I wrote over a million words. And and to be clear, as you sort of just alluded to, I mean, there's certainly no uh, retirement happening here. You're just coming out with your latest guidebook. Talk a little bit about, you know, your current role and relationship to Wild Snow. Well, I I sold it to a little over two years ago to Doug Stenslick and uh, Crip Creek Backcountry. And then the arrangement was that I would continue to, to do content to varying degrees, a little more faster pace initially, and then I've slowed down a little bit because I've got some other personal projects I'm working on. But I still really enjoy blogging, and I, I huge have a huge emotional place for the site. And Doug and I are good friends, so it's nice because I can stay involved, and I didn't have to like you know do the corporate sellout or something. Because when I needed to, to sell the site, and I was getting older, and you know I didn't really have the health resources to be sitting there writing blog posts every day of the week and that sort of thing, or editing blog posts. Um, but in any case, I um, I did go out and try to sell it um, here and there. And, you know, I thought maybe somebody would even buy it for a brand because the branding was so good and the search engine rankings. 
And that would have bummed me out if somebody taken the site and changed it into a clothing site or something. You know, wild snow ski pants, Yahoo. <laughs> yeah. you know. but, but, you know, you do what you got to do with this stuff when you're self-employed. And uh, but luckily, uh, Doug saw the value in it and and, you know, decided to step in and keep it going. And I, I'm just forever grateful to that because, you know, the body of work on there is huge and it, it achieves more and more value as it becomes somewhat historic and backstory for the industry as it is these days. So help me out chronologically here. So was it 1998 that Wild Snow, the website gets started? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I, I registered the domain name wildsnow.com in 1998. And we immediately started the flat HTML website. And it was, and at the same time, I was also developing and managing the website for Cooler Magazine, which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that little blip on the historic chain of events here, but, you know, Craig Dosty ran that magazine for, for a while. And it was definitely the word in the industry for a while there. And again, it was an early adopter situation. The, the ability to act, publish websites had just come on maybe a, two or three years before. And my brother and I, Tom, went ahead and created the website for Cool R Magazine as well. So I was getting some pretty good experience with that. So let's take it back then. And this is going to be a bit of a history test for you. We'll see how you do. <laughs> when did you publish your first guidebook? 1981. And that was, it was called Colorado High Roots. And it was all created on a typewriter and um, sent to the publisher as a manuscript and typewritten pages. And, you know, um, and it was a fairly primitive guidebook in some senses of the word. But on the other hand, there were really no guidebooks in North America at that time that were full-on ski mountaineering oriented guidebooks that I know of anyway. And I've been stepped in this culture from going to high school in Aspen and being around these individuals such as Fritz Stomberger and a bunch of 10th Mountain Division veterans. And, uh, you know, I, I, me and there were people around the country that had this, but it was a very small number of people who had this more European sense of ski touring and ski mountaineering, of really going to the tops of mountains and skiing down them rather than, you know, just touring between huts and, and that sort of thing. Um, it's hard to imagine, but, you know, I, I would say in Aspen in 1980, there might have been, you know, 30 people who were really doing that kind of, of ski touring, if that. And they were good at it. You know, they got it done. Um, and likewise around the country. But in any case, that first book was um, a little bit groundbreaking in that regard. But it, when I look back on it, of course, it's it's kind of it's it's funny because it's so dated. It's fun to look at. And then I got going on the, 14, the guides for the 14,000-foot peaks, and those happened in the 1990s. Don't have the exact publication dates for those. But again, they were fairly groundbreaking because we did a lot of oblique aerial photography and some really good cartography where we, we did. We worked really hard on the maps 
And this was before good digital mapping. And we had to do a lot of scanning and work in Photoshop to, to um, sweeten up the maps. And unfortunately, it was way more work than we ever got paid for. So that was tricky, you know, but it was, but it was a good contribution to the sport. Well, and so that's one of the things I want to ask you about is I think there's a pretty good question here is to just ask, like, I mean, you just said it was a good contribution to the sport, but I'll still ask the question, like, why write guidebooks in the first place? Like, what was your personal interest in doing that? I mean, because you're out there, you know, summiting 14ers and skiing them and going hard. But you could have kind of just kept doing that with, you know, you and your friends and colleagues. What was for you the real rationale to sort of start producing guidebooks? Oh, it was uh, it was definitely a calling. Um, and I'd, I'd broken my leg really bad um, in early in, I think it was 1976, and I had a bad experience with that. I was on crutches for almost a year and, and that sort of thing. And at the, and when, when I kind of went into the pit at that point in life and, and reevaluated my life and that sort of thing and realized that I, that I wanted to be involved in the sport more in, the, in, in a way of giving back to it. But I didn't do much about that. I wasn't very good at it. I was still pretty much in the, in the me, me, me zone, selfish kind of motivations. But then in 1982, I uh, got caught in this big avalanche and almost died. And I had a, a you know, an awakening, um, a near-death experience. And that's when I really, I was, just being in the hospital, I really thought, you know, if, I, if I'm going to stay with this sport, I really want to be doing stuff things to give back to it. I still want to go out and have fun and get crazy now and then and that sort of thing. But I don't want to just be doing it totally from my own self-gratification. And, you know, so when, as that came about, the obvious routine, because I wasn't a really accomplished magazine style writer, was to just get going on these guidebooks. And that's, that's really where that came from. Um, and, you know, there was the hope that I could make a living doing it. Um, and that was very naive because those those 30 people in Aspen that I was talking about were not a huge market, you know. So it was it was kind of funny. I've, my wife and I have always joked that I've, I'm either ahead of the time or behind it, you know, hardly ever with it. And I, I don't know, maybe a lot of creatives could say the same thing. Yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it shows you're a creative because you're, you know, you're thinking outside the box and maybe the, maybe the box is not the right box, but at least you're going for it. And, um, and Wild Snow is the only time I really hit it. Um, everything else was kind of behind the eight ball or ahead or whatever. The, the 14er guides were too far ahead. You know, there were. They came out and it was still a, a, a fairly esoteric activity to go ski down a 14er. And, uh, you know, and then Davenport finished them up and then that it changed. I forgot when that, when was that? That was 1990 something, I think. Yeah. 
So in any case, you know, it, it muddles together somewhat, but a lot of the motivation behind these books is is just this feeling of need to to help people with the sport because because I love it. And when you when you have something that is pure gold like that, most people want to share it. And it's as simple as that. And let me ask just a point of clarification. When you were talking about, well, first of all, breaking your leg, I think you said in 76. Yeah, I think that was the year. Yeah. And then the avalanche was in 82. Yeah. And when you said, and and just help me here, I want to understand this. You, I think you said something like, you know, at that phase, it was kind of all about me, me, me. And are you talking about like, I don't know, the say glory that comes with peak bagging or something? Or, you know, being the first or being the fastest or something like that to, to quote unquote, conquer certain objectives. Is that what you're talking about? No, not so much. I, I've never been super competitive athletically. And I did enjoy doing first ascents when I was a climber. And I enjoyed some speed trail running and doing some speedy skiing and that sort of thing and having bragging rights on, on different things. But it was more about the just the athletic joy of doing those sports, which I'd done since I was a teenager. And I, I really into the I was really into the athleticism of it and the feeling of just being out there in the mountains and using my body and and kind of keying in on the more spiritual aspects of being out in the wilderness and and that sort of thing. So, you know, like probably for most people, it was a dual motivation. Um, but a lot of it, and I was just that feeling of being sort of this physical creative, you know, using your body to create these first ascents or and that sort of thing. And when I segued over to the skiing more, um, you know, it was it, a lot of it was that kind of motivation. I really just enjoyed that feeling of the efficiency and getting to the top of a mountain and doing a a really good quality ski down, and you know creating that experience in my life was was like painting a painting or taking a good photograph or something like that. When you talked about potentially being, uh, say, ahead of your time, we'll, we'll put it in this way, <laughs> with the, you know, 14er guides, I do not want to make this a leading question. So I'm just going to ask, what, in your view, have been the most important developments to sort of say, get us where we are today, where certainly, you know, backcountry skiing has exploded in popularity. But if you look at from when you were first publishing these guides and over the, you know, the kind of decades since then, I'd love to hear from you what you view to be kind of these most significant things that have led us to where we are today. Sure. It's a, it's a short list. Probably the first part of it was just the resurgence, or not resurgence, but the emergence of of the baby boomer and the uh, leisure time, which when I was I was a Knowles instructor in the um, early 1970s, and I was there. The school one summer had, I think they had something like 90 students or something like that, of which I was one. And then the next summer, they expanded to um, hundreds of students because they, Paul Petzold had seen the need for this 
wilderness training that kind of went beyond our bound and was more didactic and pre to prepare people sort of foundationally to be mountain guides and, and um, possibly work in outdoor education. So this, at that point, there was this enormous expansion in, in just outdoor activities, backpacking, hiking, you know, that sort of thing. So at, that's the basic basic um, driver for the increase in popularity of backcountry skiing that we've seen ever since then. So along with that, obviously, ski mountaineering and backcountry skiing are not as easy to, to participate in as, say, hiking up a trail. So it, it was a slow burn because the part, one reason is, was that the gear was, was terrible. You know, it you a, a standard ski setup, especially in the um, or let's say in the late 1960s, could weigh 12 pounds of per foot. <laughs> you know, and that's you know that's world class athlete territory. You know, you got to yeah. be Olympian to haul that around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it really it it limited the sport. And of course, that's one reason telemarking took off is because people had figured out they could at least grab this telemark gear and maybe they weren't making a sense like they were doing around Chamonix, but they could run around with five pounds per foot or six or whatever instead of 12. So just staying on the gear, because I know you like gear. So do I. Staying on the gear. So in the 1980s, let's see, when would it have been? Um, early 1980s. Uh, the Europeans were coming up with some better bindings. They were what are what you call plate bindings, like um, I don't know. A good example nowadays are the some of the silverettas and the, those sorts of bindings, where there's a carrier plate, your foot sits on it. But they still were really heavy, and they were hard to make really reliable. Um, they tended to break because there was a lot of leverage, and it was really difficult to make the binding strong enough not to break without it being too heavy. So in, it was around 1980, 79, that this guy named Paul Raymer came along. And he built a plate carrier binding using a design philosophy that was more modern materials and really going with the, trying to integrate the release mechanism into the plate. And his binding, it worked pretty well, but it, it wasn't particularly safe. It had a a problem that even tech bindings have nowadays and that I don't want to get too technical about it, but where there was a certain kind of torque that could injure your leg. And, you know, all bindings have that problem, but in this case, it was a certain kind of torque. But, but nonetheless, his binding for a while there, because it was the lightest binding more than anything, was the most popular binding in the world for ski touring. It was called the Raymer R or Raymer Universal. And then he... Paul went on and did this and that and came up with some pretty good stuff. Um, unfortunately, he died mid-1990s when he was fairly young, and he didn't have a chance to really go after this stuff. But in any case, because of his binding and the resurgence of telemark gear, the gear part of the sport started to work for people who, were, who weren't committed to it in that Olympian athletic sense. And they could get out there and have fun and, you know, do it 10 days a year instead of having to 
do it two days a week to be able to do it. So, and then, you know, the rest is history with Fritz Bartle and the tech binding, and which was a lot of people don't realize or know, but they can see on our on our binding history page at Wild Snow that the tech binding was, and Fritzel was, will be the first one to tell you this, it was a reversal of the Raymer binding where it had a ball and socket joint in the toe, only Fritz built the uh, socket into the boot and had the, the ball, so to speak, or the thing that inserts into the socket on the ski and then used the boot as the carrier plate and again, the rest is history, and that and that's has a lot to do with the explosion in popularity of the sport. That you can run around the mountains now with this ridiculously minimal amount of weight on your feet, and really experience some athletic joy and and just a smooth, good day, and you know, no pain in your hips and it's just an entirely different deal. So that's number two. You had the explosion in, in backcountry sports, outdoor activities. Then you had the ski gear. Um, and then two more things. There was the improvement in avalanche safety. And, you know, there is that thing where you um, people – have better safety gear and they take more risk. And that happened a little bit with with the backcountry um, avalanche gear over the years. I think anybody anybody who skied back in the, say the early 70s with maybe didn't even have a beacon and just went around with an avalanche string dangling from your waist knows that you're more comfortable taking some more risks when you have a beacon and an airbag. How much more risk that is, who knows, but it is more and people are, People got more comfortable with getting out, you know, going on a maybe a safe day, but using having a beacon and knowing that there was a much better chance of being dug out of a slide. So so that was a factor. And, um, you know, and then the last thing is just the information explosion. Um, there's probably a few more things, but those are what come to my mind. And the information explosion indeed started with CompuServe and the Internet around that time. But, you know, there was also more guidebooks coming out and more people communicating about this stuff. And then since that night, that early 1990s period when the information explosion started, then it's just been this, you know, nuclear bomb has gone off with with the information. So that's, you know, in my view, that's in terms of a nutshell history of what caused the sport to expand. Well done. And and I'm curious, you know, related question, how are you personally feeling about sort of the current state of backcountry skiing? Are there things where you're like, man, I just like, where we were 10 years ago with respect to certain things, or I don't know, certain things that you like or dislike about what you're seeing today, or give me a sense of your assessment of the current current state of the union. Well, I, I like to be positive and there's really not much that bothers me. You know, for starters, there's the issue of the number of people in the crowds, but philosophically, I would be a hypocrite if I complained about that um, because 
you know, I've done a lot to to uh, enable those crowds. Um, certainly haven't discouraged them. So, you know, um, and getting back to my own personal feelings, um, because I want to be generous with this stuff, and I've felt that way since that those days of my avalanche, I've loved seeing more and more people out there. Um, I think it's just been wonderful. I feel like it's one of the best sports on the planet, if not the best. And I think everybody who's a skier who has any motivation to try it ought to give it a shot and see if they like it or not. And if they do, they, they should get out there and enjoy it. And if there's a problem with crowds, most places in the U.S., with the exception of maybe the Wasatch and some of the smaller mountain ranges, we have so much terrain that it's more about access and parking and things like that than it is about, you know, crowding the mountains. You're maybe crowding the trailhead. So that's my, you know, a little political stance I have. But, um, you know, I've been a little disappointed that people didn't, don't have a better sense of just how dangerous avalanches are. Um, having experienced so many personal tragedies for so many years. You know, it's, I've been going on a half century of this now. And I mean, I, I could make a list and I will never make the list, but it's just tragic. You know, the people that are just snuffed out when they're in their 20s or 30s and have children. You know, there was a time here in Pitkin County where the county coroner did a study and statistically, he ascertained that you had a more likelihood of dying in an avalanche than you had in a car crash. And, you know, that was an eye opener. I don't know how accurate it really was, but it certainly made sense because, you know, anybody who lived in Aspen in those days, there were plenty of people you knew that had died in avalanches, but maybe just nobody you knew had died in a car crash. So, you know, anecdotally, it it worked, but it was a real eye opener. And I think all the safety gear is good. And of course you should use it, but, and the avalanche education has gotten a lot better and I'm not sure what they can do about helping people realize how dangerous these things really are and how destructive, but they can certainly help and they do. But the main thing is those of us who are content creators, you know, it's, it behooves us to watch that kind of syndrome where we glorify it too much. And we, you know, when it comes time to talk about avalanches, it's important to be realistic about the numbers and how likely it is if you are buried, how likely it is that you will die or get so badly hurt, it can be life-changing. So, you know, I think that's the main downside for me. Everything else has just been wonderful. You know, the gear is so good. And I think it's, it's been you know, it's expensive, but it's way less than mountain biking. And the assortment and range of gear where people can so specifically dial in, you know, how heavy they want to go on stuff or how light they want to go on stuff and the proliferation of good options among, say, the weight ranges, there's never been a better time for sure, for sure. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Jonathan. You know, it's if you want to get back into the positives, it is just it's phenomenal. The choices we have now and even somebody who's been allowed around a lot shorter of a time than than me has seen that, you know, just in the last 15 years. 
Yeah. And by the way, I'll just say, I, I really agree with your state of the union. I'm kind of right there with you with everything you said. And the things I think about most are, let's continue to dial up the education. We've got like, there's no time to rest on that front. And then I think like also for each of us going out, how to continue to think about being good stewards of the places we're traveling in. And if that's even some basic stuff like, oh, these trailheads get wild packed at these particular times of the week, how about maybe we then think about not going there at those times, right? And just starting to get, like do a better job of self-management, all of us, just in terms of thinking about how do we not overrun the same spots, you know, time and time again in the rest. And I, I think that that's really what I see as, I, I think those will be perpetual things. We'll never hit the point where we've arrived, right? But the perpetual continuation of education and thinking through how to be good stewards of given areas. I think if we're doing that, like you, I'm, I don't sit around lamenting how many people are out there getting outside. I just think we need to do a better job of just like, yeah, let's let's spread out, try to do that safely and you know, think through the impacts that we are having. Yeah, stewardship is common sense. You got to manage the resource so you have it for later. I've always been what I call a recreation advocate. So I've not been you know, I've not really kowtowed to the hardcore wilderness ethic and that sort of thing because a lot of that's fairly exclusionary of people. And I don't want to get too much into those politics, but, you know, because I'm a recreation advocate, I can't help but be a conservation advocate, whether it comes to elk hunting or backcountry skiing. So it's managing the resource. And if it's voluntary, like you're suggesting or alluding to, so much the better, because the, the worst is when you they try to regulate stuff like that. Like suddenly the, the trailhead, it's not legal to park there at a certain time or something something like that. And that's just awful when it gets to that point. And, um, but yeah, a lot of it, the trailhead issue, a lot of it is, is simply timing. It's just common sense. Let's talk about this uh, latest guidebook of yours. Official title. Do I have this right? Light Tours of Colorado, second edition. Yeah. You know, I have to keep it in front of me. Um, <laughs> Because Andy and I, the publisher, you know, we're always bandling, bandying about the title. It was not an easy book to title, as you can imagine, because, you know, it's it's like tours of Colorado, but it's split boarding and skiing and maybe even a little snowshoeing in there, even though I don't really want to admit it. So we just stuck on that main title and then subtitled with Mellow Backcountry Ski Routes to Minimize Avalanche Exposure which is kind of a mouthful for a subtitle, but at least it, it nails it. It does nail it. Yeah. So yeah, talk about the motivation of putting this book together. And I mean, if we're talking about some of your earliest guidebooks that are highlighting 14ers and the rest, seems like you might be uh, doing something a little different now. Oh, totally. You know, and I'll, I'll be the first one to admit when I was doing my 14er guidebooks, I wanted to help people go out there and have a good time. But there was a little bit of a braggadocio aspect to that, you know, where I was like, oh, look at this amazing couloir that we ski and, you know, you might want to do it too. Um, 
you know, not so much bragging on my own descents, but just sort of this is what we have and how look how cool it is. And I think that's okay. You know, a lot of guidebooks kind of come across that way and, and they're really good. And they're, they're, a, they're an important resource. But, you know, because of my motivation to share and contribute to the sport, this whole concept of easy, mellow tours has always been something I've been aware of, um, whether it was back in my day of just grabbing Nordic skis and going up and down a snow-packed road or anything like that. So Andy, it was probably five, six years ago now, Andy Sovic, the publisher, he pinged me and, and said, hey, you know, your, your name's a good brand. And how about you do some kind of guidebook with me? And I said, well, you know, I'm really not that into doing guidebooks, particularly because I'm not going to be able to make a living doing that. And I'm busy with Wild Snow. I was still embroiled in the website. So I kind of hung up the phone or turned off the email with him. And then, you know, I thought about it and I thought about it. And then it was maybe probably a year later that this kind of was one of those light bulb moments, you know, where I'm like, well, you know, let's. Let's do something different that'll really help people and, and will be a little easier because it won't be this huge tome, you know, with with a hundred and something roots in it that all have to be hardcore documented and aerial photographed. So I got back in touch with Andy. I said, oh, that, you know, why don't we do a book that's mostly avalanche safe tours? And uh and Andy was, you know, he was reticent about the idea because his history with guidebook was this books that had, you know, a variety of routes and covered each area pretty extensively all the way from extreme to to the mellow. Um, but, you know, I kind of pushed it a little bit and then he thought about it and, and he and he decided to take the risk of doing that first edition. And we were both uh, surprised how many we sold. Um, and how easily it sold. And it turned out there was a real need out there. You know, for example, you're in a ski shop and you get some guy who comes in there and they're a total noob. And, you know, they, they're buying the gear because they're going to go uphilling a little bit at the resort, but they want to go in the backcountry eventually. And they're going to ask the ski shop employee who may not know these routes from Adam, really, you know, and, and they're going to say, well, where should I go? And, Prior to this kind of book, the the ski shop employee didn't have much to, to do unless they happened to be really active in the sport. So now they can just hand them this book. And you know, it kind of it kind of sells itself that way. But but in any case, you know, that's how it came about. It was and it was really a motivation um, on Andy's part and mine to do, you know, we wanted to do something obviously that was commercially viable. But on the other hand, it's a total labor of love, you know, to put put it in the old cliche, to help save people's lives. And um, and it's something, you know, the good skiers already knew this stuff. You know, you go meadow skipping when it's hairy outside and you might go uphill. But to define it all within two covers of a, of a book gives it that sort of list gravitas where a person can buy the book and they have this list. And they can kind of check the tours off through the list and they don't have to sift through a big guidebook trying to de- determine what's going to be safe and what isn't. 
or safer. I, I, I use the word safe, of course, which you know, in this conversation is politically incorrect. It's safer. So we always need to keep that in mind. Well, and we've just been talking about, you know, the explosion of interest in backcountry skiing and splitboarding and, you know, traveling in a lot of different forms. And so, you know, again, to have a book where there are light tours, where there is a less of a risk of avalanche activity since, yeah, I mean, you think about how does this stuff actually happen and somebody's kind of getting into it. They're asking around, what are some cool areas to ski in? And I have a hunch that whether it's a shop kid or just the a circle of friends, we maybe start talking about certain classic routes that really might not be a great place um, for some for some people to start. And I, I think, I, I'm sure you would agree with this, but again, it's like if you're just getting into these things, you don't need to start worrying about certain classic routes. Just figure out how to travel more safely and figure out how your equipment works and the rest. And so I think a, a resource like this, I think there's a huge, huge need for it. Yeah, well, thanks. This gets into the issue of how do you learn to backcountry ski? Right. Which gets, I think, gets tougher because there's there's so many new people as opposed to so many experience. You know, the ratio has changed. You know, it used to be when you were 18 years old in Aspen in 1969, you knew half the people in town and the you knew who the backcountry skiers were and you probably were going to go out up to a hut with those guys. And they were the most experienced people, some of the most experienced people in the country. And uh, but now, you know, who knows who you end up with? They could have just been backcountry skiing for two years or something. So it's it is hard for people to figure out how to get into the sport safely. And I get asked that question all the time is, Lou, how do how do people get into the sport? And I always say, you know, there's kind of there's some different things you can check off. I mean, if you have friends that seem really um, on top of it, very experienced and also generous with their risk assessment and happy to share how safe they like to be, sometimes learning from friends can be totally appropriate. But you do have to be super careful who you get involved in because there have been so many tragedies where people who are the the least experienced person in the party is the one that gets gets latched because um, they ski that they don't take quite the right line or or something like that. So you know, and if you do want to learn the sport, you know, you can you can meet. It's it's a lot of it's about meeting people who have like minded and who you might want to sort of learn along with, or maybe somebody's a little more experienced than you are, and you can do that through aval taking avalanche classes taking community college type how to backcountry ski courses. There's, you know, there's all sorts of things and even guiding, you know, if you get a couple of friends together and hire a guide and make sure they know that you want to learn rather than just be guided, there's some guides are very amenable to that. And, you know, they might do a little mini backcountry skiing course for you and your friends, that sort of thing. Hey, talk a little bit about this second edition. What do we get in the second versus the first? Oh, the first was, you know, admittedly, 
I wouldn't call it highly refined. You know, we had a we had a lot of trouble figuring out which uphill routes at ski resorts to put in there. We kind of just threw it against the wall and saw what stuck. And um, and this time we worked a lot harder on finding the ski areas that had good designated uphill policies and and marked routes. So, you know, that's kind of coming from the backside of this, but, um, you know, it's foundational to the book because when everything is dangerous or the storm is really bad and the storm is dangerous and you want to go uphill skiing, where are you going to go? you got to go to a resort and do it. So we put a lot more energy into that, even though there's actually, I think, fewer uphill ski resort routes because we didn't include the routes that were too vague or the, the resorts weren't very clear about their uphill policies. And then the other thing we did is Andy got more involved in the research. And he also had a greater, more resources at his fingertips with these other guidebook authors that he works with. So we were able to, part of the book is more of compilation of routes that are in some of his other books, here and there a smattering of the routes. So in a way, it's it's a community effort with my name on it as branding, you know, and I, I'm totally comfortable with that. And I think it's really appropriate because what we're trying to do here is offer the best thing we can to the people that use the book. And, you know, we could have put two or three names on the cover, I guess, but, you know, my brand's good. And might as well just keep it at that. So, but in any case, we added some roots. We were more a lot more careful about what's in here. It, because the writing, the narratives are really brief, they're very difficult to write, um, which is counterintuitive sometimes for people because they'll look at this and they see a, a root has a few hundred words, but those few hundred words have to be really carefully edited and, and revised a number of times to so there's some clarity. And I found that to be a lot more challenging than I expected because my other books well, I mean, and I'd been blogging for more than almost 25 years, which is, you know, unlimited word count. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm trying to write a, a you know, a, an introduction for the book that fits in 300 words, you know, and I'm just You're like, like ah! not, <laughs> not capable, <laughs> too few, too few words. Yeah. It's good practice because I'm doing some writing right now that's, it's narrative and it's going to be in book form and, you know, I have to, to write with some clarity and brevity, but so, but I have to say, I got deconditioned from too much internet writing. So if you're a writer, I can tell you it's a caveat. Watch out. Careful. <laughs> yeah. You might start, yeah. your stuff might start coming out more like haiku, just like how, yeah. how few words we all, every year <laughs> we kind of experience this with our, with our buyer's guide that we put out because like, a ski review anymore from us literally will be like 11,000 words. And, and we go to the buyer's guide <laughs> and because it's a physical book, it's like, cool. You now get 150 to 160 words. And it's a, like, you're saying it's a tough exercise, but it's a really good exercise, you know, to like boil it down, be as specific and clear as possible you know, just two different genres. And I'm glad you're being subjected to, to both of these things now. No, it's really cool. If you're, if you're a writer and you're into craft, 
it's a it's a really fun and interesting exercise to go from long form to short form um, and back. And I think, you know, if you do it a lot, you get fairly facile with it. You can switch back and forth. I'm not bad at it. But but nonetheless, it's going to the short side is always going to be somewhat difficult if you want some real good clarity. And there's no there's no place for clarity that's more important than trying to send somebody up and down a route, a ski route. And by the way, I was hanging out with Andy the other day and, you know, I know he's proud of this book and he was just saying that he would really love to see kind of these light tour books developed for every region of the United States and the world. And, and I, I think that people that have listened to this conversation will probably now understand why I think we all think these are really significant resources for people to have. Um, but I know Andy said that, you know, if you are someone who would be qualified to weigh in on a book like this for other regions, um, hit up, hit up Andy Sovic. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. That's, you know, I know Andy's enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed this process too. And what's, what's, interesting is around the time we published the first one, we got into one of these like minds think alike situations. There's a guy I know in Norway, who I'd gotten to know pretty well. And he at this pretty much concurrently when we did the first edition, he did a guidebook for Norway that's avalanche safe tours. And it's quite a book. It's a thick book with a bazillion routes in it because Norway is, you know, Norway is, it's ridiculous. It's so big and there's so many mountains. And his book, I forgot what it's called exactly, but if you're going to Norway, um, it's it's definitely a must have. And it's the same exact concept. It's, it's a really cool book and it's got all the oblique air drone shots in it and really good graphics and that sort of thing. So it's been fun. So there is a trend. And then, yeah, Andy told has made me aware that he's trying to seek other authors that'll do that. And I would encourage anybody to get get into it. And I think I, what I could say is if you're a guidebook writer, it's a fun process, but it's maybe a little more work than you expect. But it's but it, it results in a really um, self a gratifying contribution to the sport and people's safety and that sort of thing. And yeah, you you know you can find these routes on the internet, and they're here and there. But you know, the when when things get published, it gives it a certain amount of legitimacy when it's on ink and paper, and people know that maybe a lot more effort went into fact checking and editing and that sort of thing than when you just kind of land on something on the internet. So that's that's sort of the purpose behind this. Well, Lou, I should let you get going. Do you care to tease at all some of the things that you might also be working on these days? Or do you, would you prefer to, uh, you know, remain silent on some of this? <laughs> uh, I don't want to get too specific. Um, there'll probably be some big announcements here coming for going forward. Um, I have gotten back into my early photography and doing some digital work with it, which is, I kind of sticking with the film days, even though I've done a ton of digital photography and, and I got a pretty good photo printer. So I've been working on making these prints from the early skiing, the 14er days that actually are pretty cool. You know, they're kind of grainy sort of back looking stuff that, that looks nice. And I thought I'd 
on my website, lewdawson.com. I thought I'd eventually have a selection of those for people to enjoy. And if they wanted a wall hanger, they could they could purchase one from me or whatever. But more is just a fun thing to do from a creative impulse. And then I'm also, I'm, it's no secret that I've wanted for years to do another edition of Wild Snow, the history book. So I have been working on that. And just so other history authors know, um, I'm actually not going to add a lot of recent history to that book. What I'm going to do is make sure that the, the early history in that book is, is accurate and, and, and well stated and has some narrative quality to it. And then I'm hoping to work with somebody else. It could be Andy. It could be another publisher where we kind of modernize the suggested routes in the book. And I don't know how many people listening to this, this podcast are familiar with that book because it's been out of print for a while and stuff. But it's basically it's what's called a historical guide in that it has a lot of narrative about history. But then it, it has about 50 routes that are examples of these historic ski mountaineering routes around North America. And then each route is used as a way of focusing the history. Uh, and then it's detailed with some maps and photographs and stuff. So what I like to do is see those routes modernized in terms of operating as a tick list guidebook. Um, and indeed, you know, it kind of people like these tick lists, you know, like Cody Townsend doing his 50s pro, 50 project and so forth. And, and all of us who have done this 14 or thing that was for years, that was the big one. But, uh, you know, a, a book like Wild Snow, when I get this this next edition done, the tick list will still be around 50 routes, but the, they'll all be very doable for the normal ski tour. They won't have to be an extreme skier. So, you know, they might be hard, like Denali will always be in there. But Den Denali is really accessible now for people to ski. And, uh, you know, so and I've been up there twice. And, you know, the second time with my son in 2010, we skied from the top and I was 58 years old and it was, it was totally doable. Good stuff. Well, Lou, this is fun. It's really good to connect. And, uh, it's so fun to get to have conversations like this with people that have been kind of seen it all, you know, um, <laughs> absolutely been doing it. And if we call it this whole modern backcountry ski travel thing that we got going, you've obviously been at the th in the thick of it. So really fun to get your thoughts on some of the historical stuff and where we are today. And, um, and I'm really excited to have people check out this, this light tours book that you've put together. And I, I sure think we've managed to convey like why a resource like this is such a valuable thing particularly today Indeed. Uh, with so many people coming in. So yeah, uh, good to connect and appreciate uh, everything you've been doing. Yeah. Excellent, Lou. Take care. Good luck. Uh, we'll look forward to a big announcement coming and good luck with all the other projects too. Okay. Well, appreciate you having me. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Lou for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over on our Off the Couch podcast, our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, and, of course, Gear 30. Talk to you soon.